Well, again, good morning, everyone. Glad to have you with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Psalm 115. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Psalm 115. Um, Last week, Jeremy, uh, one of our elders, Jeremy Lundgren, preached from 1 John 5. Uh, And this week, we're going to be preaching from Psalm 115 again. Um, I chose this psalm today because I think, in many ways, um, it very much underscores uh, the amazing reality that one of the ways that God chooses to glorify himself is by helping and protecting his people. God chooses to glorify himself by helping and protecting his people, his church. Which I think in many ways has been one of the themes of our, of our year as a church together. Seeing God help and protect us as, as a body. And so I want to use this psalm today first to meditate together on God's glory. But also as a way to kind of corporately acknowledge together uh, that it is to God's glory where we are today, not to our own. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's pray, and then we're going to read Psalm 115 together. As we're going to sing shortly, Father, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder and our transport when Jesus we see. So, Father, we ask that that's what you would provide for us this morning as we look at your word. Would you help us to see Jesus? We pray that the distractions of this past week, the distractions of the week to come, the distractions of the day, would you cause those to fall away and would we be left with a vision of the Savior? We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let's read together the... The words will be on the uh, the screen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to read along in your Bible. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. 
Now, if any of you are familiar with Greek mythology, you know that the Greeks kind of believed in this massive pantheon of gods who were very, very powerful, but they were also very, very petty. Uh, When they didn't get what they wanted or when they didn't think people were praising them like they thought they deserved, often someone would get turned into an animal or someone would get struck by a lightning bolt. Um, One example, there was this goddess named Aphrodite who wanted all the women of the city of Lemnos to worship her. And when those women didn't worship her in her mind appropriately, she caused all of them to smell terribly, to smell foul, I think is how the story goes. Um, The first spider was created, according to Greek mythology, uh, when a woman named Arachne beat a god named Athena in a weaving contest. And Arachne told people about it. Athena's pride was hurt. And so she turned Arachne into a spider. Now these gods, these Greek gods, require this kind of praise and deference. um, And they had no real interest in humans or humans' well-being really at all. In fact, their relationship with humans was much more adversarial uh, often in these stories. And whether these stories of the Greek mythology were just products of fallen people's fallen imaginations or perhaps some kind of demonic propaganda against the one true God, these stories give this this very stark contrast to what the one true God is actually like. And our psalm today is this meditation on what God's glory is like and how God chooses to bring glory to himself by loving and caring and protecting his people. So as we walk through this psalm today, we're going to look at what this psalm shows us about the glory of God with kind of three, three angles in particular. These will be our three points today. The first, the glory of God belongs to God. Second, the glory of God versus the glory of idols. And finally, how God has shown us his glory. Go through those again. First point, the glory of God belongs to God. Second, the glory of God versus the glory of idols. And finally, how God has shown us his glory. And it's my hope as we follow this psalm together this morning that our hearts would be filled with gratitude and wonder that the God of the universe has chosen to glorify himself by helping us. So let's begin with that first point. The glory of God belongs to God. So take a look down at verse 1 again from Psalm 115. I'll read that in a moment here. The psalmist says this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So the psalmist is kind of starting out with what's kind of a thesis statement for the rest of the psalm. Um, And so we know that whatever it is that comes next in the psalm, the purpose of it is to direct glory to God for whatever it is that has happened, not to Israel. Now that idea of glory is one that we all probably have some kind of innate sense of what it means. Uh, The concept of glory in the Bible often incorporates honor and praise. One way you can actually uh, translate that word is by weightiness or density. Glory is something that's weighty, which is interesting. But uh, probably the closest synonym that we have is, is that giving glory is essentially giving honor to someone or to something for what it deserves giving honor to God for what he deserves. This idea of God's glory is all throughout the Bible. Um, that. Uh, 
Psalm 19, the beginning of Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So some of you might have seen some of these images that we've been seeing from this new James Webb telescope. If you've seen these, they're, they're incredible. Uh, the very first image that came out was this, this little square covered in light <laughs> and all of these little pinpricks of light apparently are galaxies. And what, we're, what we understand is that all of those pinpricks of light represent thousands of galaxies in this little image. Now, what amazes me that if you kind of understand what part of the sky this is, it was the equivalent, if we're standing on Earth, we take a grain of sand, hold it up arm's length away from us, and try to see that grain of sand, whatever amount it's covering of the sky. That is what was represented in that little snapshot. It's thousands of galaxies. And to, to try to give you perspective, which might not really be possible with this, but our galaxy, the Milky Way, we estimate has somewhere between 100 and 400 billion stars in it. And if you think about that, thousands of those galaxies in that tiny little pinprick, it's incredible. And that's just what we can see. The heavens declare the glory of God. And I think when, it, when we feel this, I don't know about you, but I get this kind of sense of almost um, it's like scary feeling in my stomach. And I think that feeling is a small brush against the glory of God. There's lots of other ways God's glorified according to Scripture. He's glorified when people repent of their sin and follow him. Somehow, Paul says in Romans that God is glorified by people's unrighteousness as well. God's glory is a mysterious thing. It's a weighty thing. And as I mentioned, our passage talks about God's glory with a fairly specific way that God glorifies himself. If you look at verse 1, God glorifies his name through or because of his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. Which means that God's relationship to his people is one of the ways he brings glory to his name. How he relates to us is one of the ways he's chosen to glorify himself. But as scripture tells us, any praise and glory and honor that we humans give needs to be directed towards God, not to ourselves or not to other things. Otherwise, it's kind of this cosmic form of plagiarism. But while that is the case, we as humans often have this tendency to kind of misdirect glory, right? misdirect praise for things to other, to other things that don't deserve them. And so that's what this next part of the psalm is about. So let's move to our second point, which is that the glory of God, or excuse me, the glory of God versus the glory of idols. So the psalmist moves on in verse 2 to kind of do this uh, compare and contrast between God's glory and the glory of idols made by humans. You can see this in verse 2. He says, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And he gives this list of all the things an idol can't do <laughs> compared to God. Right, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And I think kind of in maybe this somewhat ironic or funny way he adds at the end, they do not make a sound in their throat. Their lips can't speak and they can't even grunt out of their throats. Now there's this atheist British philosopher named Bertrand Russell who died about 50 years ago. One of the arguments he used to defend his atheism uh, was, that, uh, was this, kind of do this mind experiment or this thought experiment. If, he would say, someone were to say that there was a teapot orbiting the sun... It's really small. You can't see it with a telescope. Um, well, maybe the, the Webb telescope could see it. Um, but this teapot's orbiting the sun, 
Uh, you can't see it, but this person promises you that it's there. Russell says that the, the burden of proof is on the person claiming the teapot is there, not the person who's hearing about the teapot, right? Because you, it's, it's hard, to, hard to prove otherwise. It's not falsifiable. So what Russell was trying to claim was that if I can't see God, or if I can't measure him according to my own kind of scientific standards, then it, the burden of proof is on you to believe that he exists. So it's an echo of that question from verse 2. Where is their God? Now, lots of people since Russell pointed out all sorts of problems with this line of thinking. Um, it was kind of coined teapotism by this guy named Alvin Plantico. Just kind of funny sounding teapotism. Watch out for that one. Uh, but Russell was repeating the same idea that we're seeing in verse 2 from this psalm. That if you can't see God, he thinks God must not exist and that the people who follow him are fooled. And that's kind of the backdrop that seems to be of this psalm. The psalmist is, is kind of calling out those nations that say, where is your God, O Israel? Scoffing at them. And the psalmist wants us to see with real clarity how foolish and how incredibly deadly that is. So he gives us this very stark picture of what God is like compared to what those nations' idols are like. And so he frames this comparison again by repeating that question from the nations, where is your God? And he says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So it's a good question to ask. Why does the psalmist move from God's presence in the heavens to God's power, his omnipotence, his ability to do whatever he pleases? And as we see, it's because the psalmist wants to point out that these things that the nations worship, these idols, are laughably unable to do nearly anything. Right? They have mouths can't speak, eyes that don't work, ears and noses that don't work. If you were part of our men's or women's Bible study, uh, last semester we studied the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk kind of repeats the same idea in Habakkuk 2, 19 through 20. He writes this about the idols of the nations. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So these statues that these scoffers were worshiping were entirely worthless. They couldn't do anything, especially when you compare them to the enormous power of the creator God. But... You might have caught this. In verse 8, the psalmist says these idols actually do have one very, very deadly power. Do you see that in verse 8? The idols can make you become like them. See what it says there? Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. And that is suddenly a very chilling thought. That that dead little statue sitting on a table that can't talk, or see, or hear, or smell, or walk, can turn the person worshiping into it, worshiping it into something that also can't talk, or see, or smell, or hear, or walk. In other words, it can turn you into a dead thing. I imagine many of you may be familiar with the story of, of Gollum in Lord of the Rings. 
Gollum begins his life as a small creature who enjoys fishing and spending time outside until he finds one of these golden rings of power. The ring has an addictive quality to it, and over time, as Gollum becomes more and more enthralled with the ring, as he worships the ring, he becomes less and less of a living creature. It causes him to kind of shrivel, shrivel up and become a shell of what he once was. It makes him less and less of a person, more and more like a dead thing, although he still walks around. That's what idols can do to us as well. They make us less and less human as we become more and more fixated on whatever the thing is that we are worshiping. And perhaps the scariest part is that the person caught in this trap won't care because all they care about is the thing, the ring or whatever it might be that they're worshiping. Whatever it is you worship is going to become the most important thing in your life. And you will become like what you worship. And if that's anything other than the Lord, eventually that road leads to death. Idols can't save anyone from death. They're dead. (laughs) That final moment, at least in the movie, as Gollum sinks into the lava, you see him kind of trying to cling on to the ring and it does nothing for him. He dies. That's the folly of idolatry. It's worshiping something that can't stop you from dying. Now, the idols that this psalmist had in mind were statues that were made out of gold or silver or wood. People would use them as a way to worship some god or another. It's kind of the Indiana Jones golden fertility idol. That's the obvious thing that kind of comes to mind. It's like little golden statues. Uh, We don't worship little golden statues in the modern Western world, really, very often at least. Um, But the modern Western world has not solved the problem of idolatry by getting rid of little statues. Our hearts and our souls are designed to worship. God made us to worship him. But in a fallen world, our hearts wind up directing that worship to the wrong places. And in doing so, we ask lifeless things to give us life. John Calvin wrote once that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. You may have heard this. Tim Keller then builds on that and says this. This is a a good definition. I think it's helpful. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, which broadens the definition quite a bit. It could be money. It could be attention. It could be a person. It could be science. There's all sorts of things that we can misdirect our worship, our tension, and our love towards, which results in idolatry. And any of these idols that we face today will do the same things to us that the psalmist says these gold and silver idols will do. They'll shrivel up their worshipers, and eventually they will kill them if they don't redirect their worship somewhere else. But, as we know... There is one we can worship who does not make us less human. We become like what we worship, and if Jesus is the one that we worship, then we will, degree by degree, become more and more like him. So let's move on to our last point, how it is that we see God's glory. So the psalmist moves on to this encouragement for all of Israel to trust in the Lord. There's this kind of progression that takes place. You might have noticed it as we did our call and response to begin our service this morning. It starts with Israel broadly, 
It moves into the spiritual leaders of Israel, of Israel, and then it ends with each person who calls on the name of the Lord. So take a look, verse 9. He writes this, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Then going on in verse 12, the Lord's response is to, to this trust is to bless the people of Israel and their spiritual leaders and all who fear on the Lord. Verse 12, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. So what the psalmist seems to be doing with this progression from, from the corporate down to the individual is to help us see that this attitude of trust is meant to characterize every aspect of what God's people do. Every aspect, every layer of God's people is to be characterized by this, this trust and fear of the Lord. So back in Israel's day, if you were the king, you couldn't go to work and say, we're going to govern this place like the secular kings, because that's what you have to do to run a government. If you were the, the priests, you couldn't trick yourself into this dichotomy of imagining that your personal and your professional lives were somehow separate. If you were a person in God's people, you were called to trust in God. You couldn't tell yourself that you're fine because you're part of some broader structure like your family or the people of Israel. And if those things are trusting God, you, you should be fine. You don't have to worry about it. That's not how it works. Every layer of God's people is meant to be characterized by this trust. And the reason that God's people can trust in God is because he has chosen to be our help and our shield. We know we can trust him. And what that means for us today is that he blesses us. He blesses God's people. We are the church. Those who have called on the name of Christ for salvation are now part of God's people. And he chooses to bless those who put their trust in him. Now, this is where I, I believe this psalm should make a stop and marvel at God, who made all those galaxies, who is nothing like this pantheon of, of petty gods that the Greeks tell us the gods are like. He made all those galaxies. He's made everything. And even so, one of the ways he chooses to bring glory to his name is by loving and caring for us, for his people protecting them, protecting us because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. And although God the Father is invisible, he has made his glory visible to us. If you're familiar with the, the Gospel of John, you know that, that earlier as we were talking about the different ways that God's glorified himself, brought glory to his name, we left out a very, very important one. An enormous way that God has made his glory known to us. John 1.14 says this, Speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God the son became a man. God's steadfast love and faithfulness to us are most clearly seen for us in Jesus, what Jesus did, how he came to his own people because he loved them. He came to those who were his enemies, knowing that they were going to kill him. But he came anyway, so that he could take the sins of those who trust in him onto himself as he died on the cross. That is the steadfast love 
and faithfulness of our God to his people. So if you feel like the glory of God is kind of this intangible thing, look at the cross, look at Jesus, and you will see God's glory. When we consider those dead idols lying with kind of the the dead, lifeless hands and lips, it erases really any question of, of what truly deserves our worship when we compare them against the Savior on the cross. Whatever idol you may be tempted to worship cannot truly love you, and it cannot save you. Those idols are dead. They never had life in the first place. Jesus chose to die. He chose to give up his life. He chose to allow his life to be taken from him, to be laid in the tomb, knowing that the same lips from Jesus that had told people about the good news of God's plan of salvation would be made silent. At the hands that Jesus had used to heal people, his hands were dead and still. At the feet that had brought good news of salvation were still. But he, wasn't, he didn't stay dead, as we know. Those hands moved again. Those lips moved and spoke life again. The feet walked out of the tomb because death couldn't hold the Savior. Death could not hold Jesus. And he is now alive, seated beside God, and he will never die again. So think about that. That is your Savior, if you are a follower of Jesus. And right now, right now, each one of us is becoming a little more like whatever it is we worship, which means that if Jesus is the object of your worship, then you are becoming more and more like him until one day you also will be resurrected from the dead, just like him. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians verse three, 18, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. He writes this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. So if Jesus is the object of your worship, Paul says, if you are beholding Jesus, then you are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory into a far, far greater glory, the glory of the resurrected Savior. I think about all these ways that the Greeks imagined that their gods gave themselves glory, brought themselves glory by kind of lording themselves over humans, or the ways that we as humans tend to want to bring glory to ourselves. It, It makes what Jesus did all the more extraordinary for us, that God glorified himself by dying for his arrogant, sinful little creatures. And he did that because he loved us, because he loves us. So any temptation for us to bring honor to ourselves looks ridiculous when held up against God's glory as we see it in Jesus. Now there are a couple ways that I think we as a church can appreciate this psalm in particular. First, the Lord has decided that our church would continue as a local expression of his, his big See church. That's a beautiful thing. I know many of us can testify to the fact that the Lord has helped us and protected us, both individually and as a church. And that is often the case, always the case in our lives. We can testify to that. And so as we think about these things, as we think about the fact that God has chosen to bless us as one of the many expressions of his church, and that he has chosen to bless his broader church worldwide, 
I think I want us to join in, in, in saying glory to the Lord for what he has done. He is our help and our shield. And another way we can put this text into practice is going to be going back to those first words of the psalm, not to us. Right, there's always a temptation in some ways for either ourselves personally, perhaps ourselves as a group, to kind of be impressed. Be impressed in some ways with ourselves, be impressed with something about our, our corporate body as a church, be impressed with something that, that, that draws our, our minds and our eyes down to things that we have done. But we recognize that while there are many ways we can be impressed with ourselves, I think it is appropriate clearly appropriate for us as a church to say that it is not to our glory when God chooses to bless us. It is not to our glory when he chooses to work through us. It's not to our glory when he is our help and our shield. It is because of his hand that we are here. And praise be to him for that. Now there's one final point this psalm has for us. You might have noticed down in verses 16 through 18, there's this odd phrase. So read down again, verses 16 to 18 with me again. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So you notice that odd line there. It says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Now, to help us understand this, the Jews understood death to be this, uh, this almost directional thing, right? When you died, your soul or your life force uh, kind of went down into the grave, went down into Sheol. The Jews understood you, you couldn't come back after you died. They talked about the bars of Sheol closing on to those souls that have gone down into, into it. In other words, when you go down, <laughs> when you die, there is no coming back to try to live your life to praise the Lord. At that point, it's over. You can't come back. In other words, the time for praising the Lord is right now. That is the job of those who are alive, to live for the Lord in this moment. I think there's an exhortation here for anyone who might be tempted to be putting off seriously pursuing the Lord. All of us can live with an idea or the temptation towards the idea that there's, there will be a time in the future when we can kind of clean things up and follow the Lord. That's the kind of future thought of that. But none of us are guaranteed any moment on earth. And the moment you die, that is it. Your life will have been, your life is over at that point. There is no more chance to go back and to place your trust in Jesus. The time for following the Lord and trusting the Lord and praising the Lord is right now while you are still alive. Because death is coming for you one day and you do not know when that will be. And when that happens, whatever you have been worshiping will be lying either <laughs> dead beside you or it will be Jesus, the risen Savior, who one day promises that he will raise you back to life. So don't wait to follow Jesus. Trust in him today while you are still alive. And if you have trusted in him, rest in the promise that you can know that when you die, your hands and your feet, your lips will not lie dead forever. But there will be a day when you will be brought back to life to join Jesus in living on a new heavens and a new earth forever. That's the great hope that all followers of Jesus have. And when the day comes that we die, we won't stay dead. 
he will bring us back from the dead because he is faithful to his promises and his steadfast love for us as his people can't be broken. And so to end this, to end this morning, returning to the first verse of our passage once again, when we do behold our Savior Jesus and remember the great lengths that he went to because of his love for us, we are left to join the psalmist in saying, not to us be the glory, but to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do join in giving praise to you for your blessing to us. We thank you for the ways that you have blessed our church, you've blessed our church leaders, you've blessed each one of us, small and great, who have feared and trusted in you. We join in giving you the glory for the great things that you've done. Most of all, what you have done by sending Jesus to die for our sins, to be given new life, and who's now alive and seated next to you. So give us eyes to see folly of idols when they tempt us. We ask that you would grow our hearts in wonder at the majesty of your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.